You know, the days we're living in, Cindy and I emceed the other night up at True Light, and one of the things I stressed at one part of the, the meeting was the culture we're living in. It, the culture we're living in, it isn't new. You know, it just didn't happen because of COVID. This cultural shift has been taking place for years. And it's not a surprise to the Lord. And each one of us as Christians are called to be actively representing Christ to the world, irregardless of the culture. And what that means is, is the culture gets more unfriendly or even anti-Bible, unfriendly to Christianity. It doesn't, doesn't mean we back off. As a matter of fact, it means we need to really dig in and go forward again with love. We need to be assertive with sharing our faith. We need to be very mindful of how we are living our lives to a world that's watching us as Christians. Hopefully they know you're one. If they don't, we have a whole other problem. But as Christians, we are to live a life that demonstrates the life of Christ. We won't do it perfectly, and there will be days we don't do it well at all. But that still needs to be our goal. You know, in the Scriptures in Revelation, when, when it goes through the, the churches, seven churches, there's a church called the Church of Laodicea. It's in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. We're not going to go there. I'm not going to read it all. But it basically says, Church, I know you. I know your deeds. And I know what you think of yourself. But it doesn't line up with what I, God, thinks of this church. You think you're wealthy and you're successful. And Laodicea was a wealthy city at the time. It was an educated medical center at the time. And he says, you think these things are yourselves, and you think you're wealthy, you're self-sufficient, and you don't need God, you're wrong. You're broke, you're poor, you're naked. Let me give you some advice, is what the angel of the Lord spoke to this church. And hopefully by now you'd have his, their attention. He says, let me give you some advice. You need to return. You need to love the Lord. You can't be this lukewarm church. If you remember the story, those of you that do, or the, the letter to this church, it says, I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold. In other words, I wish you cared one way or the other, but you're lukewarm and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you think you're something you're really, really not. We don't need lukewarm churches in our culture today. It's the last thing we need to be as a lukewarm church, and there are tons of lukewarm churches. And I'm going to take the time, even though I wasn't probably going to, one of the questions you might have, I had it, what does it look like to be lukewarm? Now, this is not from the Scriptures exactly. This is man's interpretation. So I'm going to just share a few points, though, however. Lukewarm Christians don't really want to be saved from their sin. What we want to be saved from is the penalty of our sin. Lukewarm Christians are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, but they don't do radical things themselves. Lukewarm Christians equate their partially sanitized lives with holiness. God doesn't want sanitized lives. He wants holy lives. Lukewarm Christians rarely share their faith with their neighbors or co-workers or friends. There's a quote that Charles Spurgeon said that I think is so applicable to so many lukewarm people. It was simply this. You're either a missionary or you're an imposter. That's convicting, isn't it? You are either one of two things. You're a missionary or an imposter, or you're a lukewarm Christian. 
Lukewarm Christians think about life on earth much more often than they think about eternity. Lukewarm Christians love their luxuries and rarely give to the poor in a truly sacrificial way. Got a little extra, but sacrifice? Not so sure. Lukewarm Christians do not live by faith. Their lives are structured, so they never have to. I mean, I living by faith is scary. It's challenging. It's uncomfortable. If we can structure everything well enough, that's and we're so good at trying to do that, we don't have to live by faith. We're living according to the plan Mike has structured, surrounded himself with. And lastly, lukewarm Christians give God their leftovers, not their first and their best. Leftovers of their time, their talents, their finances. We're called to give our very best. And we've got all kinds of excuses. You know, I know this is supposed to be on the church calendar, the triumphal entry of Christ, Palm Sunday. You know, all the people are cheering and hollering Hosanna and throwing their cloaks on the road. And it's an important day. Don't get me wrong. It's an important day. But you've got to remember that celebration was based on a totally wrong premise. They didn't understand who Jesus really was. They had a completely different definition of a Messiah. So my focus today is going to be actually more on what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane and the night that Jesus was betrayed. It's more of a Good Friday thing than a Palm Sunday thing. We need to be a church that's on fire for God. What does that mean? We need to be on fire for God and His purposes and His plans. A church that's filled with passion. Man, we get passionate about stuff. I get passionate about things. Shoot, this is one of those times of year I used to get really passionate about something. It's called the Final Four in the NCAA basketball tournament. I still love it, but it's not a passion. We need to be passionate about the things of God, the things of, of, of His plans, His purposes. And that passion needs to be fueled by, I, I believe this is critical, it needs to be fueled by our understanding of how much he loves us. So my passion is fueled by knowing and understanding how much he loves me. Because that is the thing that will drive us when all the challenges and difficulties come. And it needs to then be driven, fueled by his love and driven by our love for him. Are we willing to lay down our life for the Lord? What would motivate us to do that? What would motivate me to lay down my life for my wife and my children? A love for them. A passion for them. We need to be that way. We need to be passionate about the things of God and who He is, what He's done. We need to let His love. And that's why I think it's so important. I don't think most of us understand how much He loves us. And I think part of that's the church's fault. When I say church, I mean the church in general. Not necessarily us, but us too. I don't want to remove us from that. I believe that we can only be fueled by the Father's love, driven by our love for Him, when we truly know, understand, and experience the love of God. That's the title of my message this morning. To know, understand, and experience the love of God. You know, you can know about God's love. You can sort of understand your God's love. That's all here. And some people in religious circles don't want to talk about experience. You know, churches like us where there's a little emotionalism, except we get accused of being all about this experience. 
Well, let me tell you this. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and there wasn't an experience and there isn't a change in your life, there's something wrong with you. You were going to hell. I was going to hell. I was going to spend eternity in hell until he changed my life completely. If that's not an experience, there's something wrong. We need to know. We need to understand. But we also need to experience. And that's what the world wants. They want an experiential relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't want to just know about Jesus. They may want to understand, but they don't even need to understand. They don't want to understand. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I don't know. But neither one of those two things save you. Experiencing Jesus Christ. The power of his death, burial, and resurrection. We need that experience. So we need all three of those things together. And when you think about it, relationships require knowledge and understanding. You know, getting to know someone, getting to understand them. That's part of building that relationship. So there's, there's not, I don't want to put those things down in any way, shape, or form. But it's the relationship that's critical. And I really believe that's what the world's looking for. A relational experience with Christ. I believe the more that we know about the love of the Father, knowing about His love, understanding His love, enables us to experience His love. If I don't even know what's available, how do I experience it? So we need to know about His love. And it's not like God's trying to keep that a secret. He demonstrated His love in the most powerful and amazing way ever in history when He sent Jesus to that cross. And understanding what took place at that cross should help us have a greater revelation of how much He loves you. And that's my goal today is so we see more clearly how much He loves us. Jesus went to that cross and there's a word we're going to be using a couple times, and I'll explain it more fully in a minute, but it's he became a propitiation for us, an atoning sacrifice, if you would. I think you're getting ahead of me, but that's okay. We didn't anticipate. 1 John 4.10. I believe so much of this is underemphasized. When you think of Easter, what do you think of? Do you think of the empty tomb and Jesus raising for the dead? Or do you think of the cross? Hopefully we think of both, because they're both a big deal. But it's a whole lot easier for me to think about the resurrection in an empty tomb than it is to think about a bloody cross with Jesus being nailed to it, hands and feet, wearing the crown of thorns, suffering in agony. I don't really like to think about that much. And I think the church in general, a lot of the church, it's starting to go away from that. But that's the part that there is such understanding and a demonstration of his love that we need to emphasize it. And that's what I'm going to do today. First John 4.10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Some of your translations, NIV says the atoning sacrifice instead of propitiation. That's how much he loved us. What does that mean? We'll see. In First John 2, 1, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but all 
So for those of the whole world, he's a propitiation, a atoning sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. Forever. The sins of the past, the present, and the future. Anyone who has lived is alive or will be alive. That's a big deal. Propitiation. Now that would be a good place for that slide. The action of appeasing. What is that word? We don't use that word much, propitiation. The act of appeasing, satisfying. It means the act of gaining or regaining favor or goodwill. It means to atone or the atonement in the way we use it in religious circles. To atone. To make it right. Make what right? The penalty of sin was death. But it doesn't just mean physical death. The wrath of God. The punishment for sin. What is the ultimate punishment for sin? In rejecting Christ. Hell. What does hell all include? I don't know. But I know it's not good. And I know if Jesus went to the cross and he took the punishment for me, it included anything and everything that hell would have included. It has to. He had to be willing to take it all. I believe that Bible teaches propitiation is two parts, and the one part gets ignored a lot. This whole idea of appeasing the wrath of God. In a lot of Christian circles, frankly, uh, and, and there's smart people on this, are both sides of this position, a lot of Christian circles, they have a real challenge believing that the God the Father would put his wrath for our sins on his Son. They don't have any problem with the second part. I believe the Bible shows clearly it's a two-part thing. The wrath had to be taken care of. And Jesus bore it. So that we then could be reconciled, part two. And that's what I really want to focus on today. I believe if we remove in any way or diminish in any way the reality of what took place on the cross, we are missing and, and, and lacking an understanding of how much he loves us. And that's the message today, whether it sounds like it or not, how much he loves us and how much he demonstrated it to us on the cross. You know, in 2015, I got asked to do a wedding down in Alabama for a beautiful young gal named Carolina. A number of you met her when you went on mission trips to Columbia. She was one of our translators, interpreters. And Cindy and I talked about this, and it was like, really, we're going to drive all the way to Alabama for a wedding of someone that Cindy never met and I met on a mission trip? And, uh, you know, yeah, we're going. And really, it was great. It was wonderful. It was fun. We got to see part of the country we've never seen. But you know how it happens. God does something that you did not expect and you did not plan for. Turned out the wedding was an outdoor wedding. And it was at a privately owned ministry center. And the lady that owned it was named Dr. Sandy Kirk. And she had written a book called Undone by the Blood of the Lamb. You can tell it affected me. (laughs) I've given this sermon of some sort of this sermon for five years in a row because ever since I've read that book and had this conversation with her, it's challenged me to try to understand greater the love that the Father demonstrated through the cross. 
What did Jesus mean when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? When he prayed the prayers that he prayed in the Garden to the Father. What was it that could possibly have weighed on Jesus' heart so much that he would actually be praying to the Father and he would say things like, I am grieved or sorrowed to the point of death. What possibly could be so severe and so serious that he would sweat drops of blood? Literally. It's a medical condition brought about by severe, severe, severe stress. Very few people in the world have it. Jesus had it for at least one night. Matthew 26, I want to share a few or parts of a few scriptures. Verse 38, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Just think, this is Jesus, God in the flesh. All man, all God. And he's praying this way. Grieved to the point of death. Luke twenty two forty four. And being in agony, he was praying fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Mark fourteen thirty four. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and, and he prayed again. And he's praying, now God, Father, you can do anything. This sounds like a prayer of pleading. Father, you can do anything. Remember, you can do anything. If it's possible, take this cup from me. There's got to be a better way. But if there's not, your will be done, not mine. Amazing what was in that cup. What could cause him to feel such agony? What grieved him so intensely? What could bring such sorrow to the point of death? Sweating drops of blood. I believe we're giving a clear hint here and then clarity in other parts of Scripture that it has to have something to do with what's in the cup. What must have been in that cup? He said, his, his request was, Father, remove the cup. My sorrow can be taken care of. My grief can be taken care of. I can quit sweating blood. What's in the cup? Well, we don't see clearly when he's praying what's in the cup. A lot of people, and I plead guilty to this before five, six years ago, I just assumed Jesus was beginning to understand what was coming. What's in the cup? Pain and suffering in a general sense. Getting nailed to a cross. Getting a crown of thorns forced down on your head. Being beaten with that whip ripping flesh from your bones. Being mocked, ridiculed. I just figured that's probably what's the cup. Ultimately getting a spear thrust in your side, getting laid on a slab of rock in a tomb. Is that what is in the cup? Well, let me just suggest in the natural. This week I also then started reading about some people who have been martyred for Christ. People who have been beheaded. People who have been literally crushed to the point of death, people that have been burned at the stake, people that have been stoned. And you know when you read these stories of the martyrs, you know what you don't see? 
People saying, God, take this away from me. Rescue me. Punish them. Destroy them. Stop this. I know you can do it. Most of the time, even as they're being martyred, they're proclaiming their faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's what Jesus was worried about, is he less filled with faith and confidence in God the Father than those other martyrs? I think the answer is, of course not. No way. So what must be in that cup? If you haven't figured it out, obviously the cup is a metaphor for something. And something's in that cup. Can we figure it out from Scripture? And the answer is, I think we can get a lot of evidence of what's in the cup. In the Old Testament especially, the cup is used as a metaphor over and over and over. And almost all the time, it's a metaphor for God's punishment and wrath being poured out on unbelievers and sinners. Let's look at a few parts of a few of the verses. And you can write them down if you want to read the whole context. But in Ezekiel 23, 33, this cup is called the cup of horror and the cup of desolation. In Jeremiah 25, 15, filled with the wine of my wrath. Isaiah 51, 17 and 22, it says, the cup that made you stagger for the cup, the goblet of my wrath. Isaiah 53 the famous scriptures in Isaiah 53 about the Messiah, we consider him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Notice where the punishment came from. Who did the inflicting? God the Father. Why could he ever do that? Why would he do that? Because Jesus was the... He was, he was that atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sin. He was taking on, on himself what we deserved, not just physical death. And you say, oh, thank goodness that's Old Testament. I guess that doesn't bother us anymore. Let me read a couple from the book of Revelation. In Revelation 14, verse 10, this is a clear description given by an angel from heaven. And in the exact context, it's being given to those that reject Christ during the tribulation. More specifically, even those that take the mark of the beast, whatever you think that to be. In other words, this is, the, this is what the angel's saying for those who reject Christ. They will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. The cup, the Father's cup, filled with his wrath because of sin. In Revelation sixteen nineteen, it says, the cup of wine of his fierce wrath. You can probably see why people don't like to talk about this much. It's a horrible picture. It's a picture of what's awaiting those who reject Christ. It's what's awaiting all those who say, ah, that's, you know, it's not for me. I got all I need. I don't need a God. You weak Christians need a crutch to stand on. They're just deceived. This is what's awaiting those that 
that don't receive Christ. But because Jesus went to the cross, he drank of the cup of God's fullness of his wrath. You know, it's like the fury and the wrath of God has been condensed down into this cup for all sin, from all time, for all mankind. And Jesus is metaphorically looking into that cup and saying, Father, you can do anything. If there's any way, please remove the cup so I don't have to drink it. But nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. I believe that cup contained God's judgment, not just death. In her book, Dr. Kirk used this line, hell's blazing fury in a cup. And that's what Jesus knew was coming. And I believe what he knew was coming was part of an eternal covenant established before the beginning of the world. I could read a number of scriptures. I'm going to just read one from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus Christ. The covenant of redemption was established before the world was created. God knew God had this plan. And I believe this plan was something that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all knew about and were all in agreement on. There can be no division between those three. And I think it's critical that Jesus, as man, that night in the garden, when he is praying fervently, I think it's critical that he understood fully what was coming. Fully, there was no surprise. He knew what was coming. He had to know for him to be fully willing to go with no compulsion, no surprises. I believe he knew, and I believe he has known since the eternity past that this was what was going to happen. What an amazing love. Think about that. That's how much he loves you. That's how much Jesus loves you. It's hard with our natural mind. Think about all of the fury and wrath of God from all eternity, ever since man was created and starts sinning, and it's all going to go on Jesus. When he said it is finished and death came, praise God, he had finished the task. And next week we celebrate the confirmation that it was sufficient because he was raised from the dead. And no one who accepts Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is no longer, no one is any longer under the threat of that punishment, that wrath. But according to Revelation, it's clear that the world is that rejects Christ. But what about the Father's love? Jesus' love, wow. What about the Father? You know, there's some people that don't like this whole concept that I'm sharing with you because they look at it and say, what kind of father would do that to his son? What a cold-hearted, emotionless God could possibly do that to his son? How cruel must that God be? 
I mean, we'd call it extreme child abuse at the very least. What kind of father could ever do that to their son? The reality is nothing could be further from the truth. When we think about eternity, remember this. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have been fellowshipping from eternity. They've always been the three that are one. Always in fellowship. There is nobody, nothing that loves Jesus more than the Father. No one. John Piper put it this way. In the very moment when God's curse rested most heavily on Jesus because of sin, the Father's love for His Son reached explosive proportions. Boy, think about this. The most impossible task, the most painful task, the most horrendous task anyone ever has been assigned. And He goes willingly and completes the task, knowing what was coming. Just think about how proud you and I get of our children when we tell them to do something. And we know it's hard, and we know they're going to struggle, and we know it could be painful, and they, we know that they might fail, and they do the task. Man, are you not proud of that kid you love? Now, exponentially greater this is with the Father and Jesus. John Stott wrote it this way in the book called Cross of Christ. And to understand this as you read it, you've got to remember God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three in one. John Stott wrote it this way, in giving his son, he was giving himself. Through the person of his son, he himself bore the penalty which he himself inflicted. There is neither harsh injustice, nor unprincipled love, nor Christological heresy in any of that. There is only unfathomable mercy. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. Those that have you heard other versions of this message in the last five years, that quote's been in every one of them. That, that last closing thought, His divine love triumphed over divine wrath. It was God's who determined the punishment. God determined that. His divine wrath by His divine self-sacrifice. tell you, people, that's a deal for us like you could never get anywhere else. God established the rules. God declared the punishment. And God accepted the punishment. So we don't have to. What a great deal. What an amazing thing. You know, sometimes we get so excited about studying whatever we call the deeper things of the Bible. There is nothing deeper than the cross. There's nothing deeper than the cross. Sometimes we neglect it because all you see is the horror of the cross. Man, we watch even some movies. Watch The Passion of Christ. The horror of the cross. We miss the love of the cross. The demonstration of His love. You know, it's only through really, I believe, as we understand it more, understanding the cross, it's only then that we begin to understand the Scriptures that we read that says we will know the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height of the Father's love for us through Christ. This is what we need to understand 
so that we can be a church that's filled with believers who know His love. We're passionate about His plan and His purpose. We are fueled by that love and we're driven by our love for Him. That's the kind of church Jesus is coming back for. That's the kind of bride He's coming back for. What possibly could have compelled Jesus when He metaphorically looked in that cup and knew what was coming? These are not my own words, but I love the picture. He saw something else in the cup. You know what He saw? He saw the same thing the Father saw. He saw me. He saw you. And he knew that's why he was going to go to the cross. That's why he was going to experience the wrath of God. Because he saw us. He saw what he was going to suffer and die for. And he loved us so much, he did it anyway. He did it anyway. So don't let us ever diminish the cross. You know, Paul, greatest teacher we've ever known besides Jesus, said these things in three verses. I'm going to just read quickly. Galatians 6.14, Paul says, But God forbid that I should glory except in anything the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He's crucified unto the world because he understands the love of God that fuels his passion and he's driven by how much he loves him. 1 Corinthians 2.1, When I come to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You want to give a powerful sermon, a powerful message? Jesus Christ, He died for your sins. He was raised from the dead. Your sins are forgiven. Amen. Pretty easy. You don't even have to be a theologian. I don't think you even have to go to seminary. In 1 Corinthians 1, but we preach Christ crucified. Pay attention to the next words. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And I think all of us in here fall into the category of the Gentiles. I think. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. A few quick questions. Do you understand how much the Father loves you? Do we get it? I hope you understand more now than you did 35 minutes ago. Do you understand what Jesus did for you? He didn't just die in your place. He took the wrath of God so you and I don't have to. When I look at that 1 Corinthians, a stumbling block and foolishness to the Gentiles, how many times do we share with people and that's basically their response? That's stupid. That's foolishness. I don't need that. I don't want that. Foolishness. They reject it. The reality is, with this many people here today, there's probably some of us that fall into that category. For whatever reason, lack of understanding, whatever reason, we have rejected the message of the cross. Salvation is here today for every single one who wants to receive it. Knowing is one thing. Understanding is even better. 
but without the experience, the personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the knowledge and wisdom does you no good. So if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, surrendered your life to Him, I pray that you would do that today, even as I believe, do we have a closing song, Brian? Yes. If you're here and you've never done that, I would love or one of the elders would love to pray with you to accept Christ. Just feel free to come up. Don't let those lying thoughts like what's the enemy or what's somebody next to you going to say, what are they going to think? I don't care if you've come to this church for 25 years, every year I've been here. If you've never done this, you need to do this. Let's stand together. Father, I pray as we prepare our hearts to close with this worship song that you would move amongst us. Father, if there be anyone here who has never experienced the life of Christ in themselves, accepting the gift of salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection, that today would be that day. And for the many here that know Jesus and have relationship with him maybe for a long time, I pray that today you even give greater revelation of just how much you love us. That we would have a passion fueled by your love. And that would drive us out of our love for you.